Ever heard of the medieval English queen who used boiling beer and attack bees to successfully repel the Vikings? Or the princess in Renaissance Sweden who turned to a life of piracy? What about the 17th century Angolan princess who executed a man for daring to criticize her active sex life? These are just three women profiled on Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and the goal of this podcast is to share the stories of history's most scandalous women, both those you've never heard of, as well as taking a new look at ones whose stories you thought you knew. Vulgar History is available on all podcasting platforms. Hope you take a listen. Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Greetings, mortals. Welcome back to the season finale of season two of Fatal Fortunes. We are here to talk about Anne of Cleves, Henry VIII's fourth wife. You might be wondering... Where's the Jane Seymour episode? We've done Anne Boleyn, of course, with our friends at Historical AF, and the Catherine Howard episode. Well, it's on the subscribers-only feed, which you can get either through Spotify or through Patreon for 99 cents. What a deal. Gotta find out what happens. We were lucky enough to talk to Heather R. Darcy, a wonderful history commentator who has a new book coming out in June of 2023 and is one of my favorite people to listen to on the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. She has her own new segment on their YouTube channel called Hands on History. And we will be talking to her later in the episode. So you know how we start every episode of Fatal Fortunes. What was happening in 1515? Nathan, take it away. So we've got Mary Tudor and Charles Brandon married at Greenwich. Is it Greenwich or is it Greenwich? Greenwich, yeah. Greenwich. It's Greenwich. It's like Worcester and Duster. No, it's not Duster. (laughs) Sorry. We've also got going on. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry, Boston. In 1515, the Battle of Tournadog is a big win for the Ottomans. Hell yeah, Ottomans. That empire is probably going to live long. Then they should got... definitely be featured in season three. The Ottomans? Sure. Yeah. Why not? We've got Diego Velasquez founding Havana, Cuba. There's a double wedding between Louis II marrying Mary of Austria and her brother Ferdinand marrying sister Anna. Thomas Wolsey invested as a cardinal and named Lord Chancellor of England in the same year and orders the construction of Hampton Court Palace. The Portuguese set foot in Timor Island. We got births this year. Mary, Queen of Scots' mother, Mary of Guise. Injong of Chasan, 12th King of Chasan, Dynasty of Korea. Sazade Mustafa, son of Suleiman the Magnificent, also born this year. And for deaths this year, we have Quilago, queen regnant of the Chasqui people of Ecuador, and also Louis XII. And that's what's happening in 1515, but we're not here to talk about any of them. 
we are here to talk about Anne of Cleves and I thought before we even got into Anne of Cleves life we should talk about her background and the history of Cleves. So Anna was born to the house of Vondermark and that family they controlled Cleves among a couple other territories. They claimed their heritage from Orsini of Rome who had followed the Holy Roman Emperor to Germany in the year 1000. Cleves got its name maybe from the word for cliff or clover and one can see Anna's story is either one of peril or pleasantry. There was a time when Cleves also controlled Nijmegen. City, I have had many oppressed meat in. Oh yeah. I've, I've also had times in Nijmegen, Al. No oppressed meat, though? No. I think I, I rode by a festival on a train, but I did not stay for the festival. Their festivals over there are weird. One time I got nachos and they were literally so disgusting. I can imagine. Yeah. That, I mean, that's not something I walked away with in that experience in the Netherlands was, wow, that food. Mm, delicious. <laughs> not at all. And I think Sorry. I might have said this on the podcast before, but I remember I read an article that said the Dutch are the biggest people, but they're getting smaller because they're malnourished. So mm. like this isn't just... They are, yeah, big. Yeah. So Nathan and I aren't just like having bad palates. Like they're genuinely no. making food that malnourishes you over there. Yeah, it's not good. They don't eat a lot of good stuff over there. The Duchy of Cleves was made up of a cluster of minor territories, like I mentioned, Glücksburg, Mark, Ravensburg, and sometimes Gelders, which will come up later. At the time of Anna's birth, Cleves was, you know, really at its zenith. It was large. It had power in the new Reformation era, and strategically, it was importantly positioned within the Holy Roman Empire. Um, at the time of Anna's marriage, there is enough territory that makes up Cleves that she could travel entirely up to the sea to get to England without having to ask the Holy Roman Emperor for permission, and she might have been taken a political prisoner if she had had to cross that way. But the French ended up being really nice to them, so it's fine. Anna's father was Johann III, and he claimed the territory of Glücksburg through the right of his wife, Anna's mother Maria. Maria was the only child and therefore the sole heiress of her father, and they were engaged, her parents, when they were five and six years old, respectively. The two finally got to marry in 1510. Anna's paternal grandfather was John the Childmaker, who had about 60 illegitimate children, and he, you know, set up houses for all of them. Like, some of them lived together, but he made sure that he provided for all them babies. All 60. Wow. At least. Wow. That's like a couple a year for your whole life. That's like an adequate name for John the Childmaker. Anna had an older sister who was named Sibylla and a younger brother named Wilhelm and then also a younger sister named Amalia. Anna was probably born in Dusseldorf, a place that I've been to and had... A very nice little gelato and beer there, um, along with Sibylla and named after her father's sister. There's debate about the date of Anna's birth, if June 28th is correct. Then she and her future husband actually shared a birthday, and the, the September date doesn't really line up correctly against the birth of her younger, younger brother. Anna was born a duchess and had a place in the line of succession for the duchy and was raised at Burg Castle. 
There wasn't always harmony between the siblings. Sibylla recalled that she threw a pair of shears at Anna's forehead. Good lord. Her sister, uh, in 1527, was when Anna was 12 years old, she's married off, Sibylla's married off, to the ruling family in Saxony. Anna's brother Wilhelm was eventually known as Wilhelm the Rich, and her sister Amalia, though, became a spinster and lived at Wilhelm's court and had a hand in raising her brother's children. Anna learned how to read and write, but the extent of her education beyond this and running a noble household staff, cooking, sewing, etc., it's not known. At the same time as Sibylla's betrothal, Anna was betrothed to Francis, son of the Duke of Lorraine, a distant, distant relation. Maybe not so distant. This marriage did not come to pass, but it was used to screw Anna later. By 1538, Thomas Cromwell had his eye on a continental match. So Jane Seymour, she had died the previous October. Henry's super sad, but of course Thomas Cromwell, like he do, is positioning himself for more power. Along with Anna and Amalia, he considers Christina, Duchess of Milan, who Anna's brother Wilhelm is also trying to marry, and she's just an unlikely match for the king because a lot of people were trying to make a match with this young woman. She had been married off at like 12 to the Duke of Milan and he was like old. <laughs> he was like 42 yeah. or something. And then he yeah. died shortly thereafter. So she like Good. got that dowry super fast. So people really wanted to be around her and her father was like the exiled king of Denmark. So maybe the claim to the throne was going to her, etc. But this is like, <laughs> how old is she at that point? She was 19. Oh, oh, yeah, she's like 17 to 19 while all of these super crazy daisy negotiations for her hand are going on. By June of 1538, England was considering a match with Cleves to be more advantageous, although we know Henry never actually married off his daughter Mary. He was also considering a dual match himself with Cleves and Mary with the new Duke of Gelders. As you can see, the Vondermark family is already losing a little bit of control. And in 1539, Anna's father, Johann, died, leaving Wilhelm to make matches for his sisters. Like, this in a strange way really sped up negotiations. Uh, The girls are also getting older. Anna's, like, 23 at this point. Her sister Amalia is also getting to be a little bit older than marrying age. By the end of 1539, Anna was headed for England to marry Henry, um... We think that Henry was provided uh, two portraits of one of Anne and one of Amalia. And he just, you know, picked the one that he thought was more favorable because, you know, he likes them pretty. <laughs> he definitely sees his queens as uh, that's like number one and number two criteria. Fertile, oh number one. Pretty, <laughs> number two. So she goes through Europe. She's meeting a bunch of people on her way. They're really celebrating her. She's arriving with a huge retinue of people from Cleves. And she spends a little longer than expected at the port city of Calais. Of course, it was English territory for a really long time before it finally became France. When she arrives in England, she's greeted by Catherine Willoughby, who would become her lifelong friend. On the 1st of January, Anna receives a visitor. Henry had come to call on her with about a dozen of his men, and without his finery, the king looked like any other aged man with an open sore on his leg. 
it was not normal in the culture of the Cleves court for men to meet with unmarried women like this, so she was probably a little bit taken aback. She, of course, also doesn't know what Henry really looks like, and she's spooked, she rebuffs him, and uh, this is the infamous I like her not scene when he storms out of there and like realizes he's the smelly fat one. But still, she gets a New Year's gift from the king, and this is a crystal goblet that is covered in diamonds. On the 2nd of January, she meets those who would make up members of her household, including Margaret Douglas, the daughter of the king's older sister, Margaret Tudor. She had come to England with a huge retinue of representatives from the United Duchies who were all there to witness the marriage and then swiftly return home. It is common for foreign queens to be appointed a staff made up of their husband's allies and other friends. I, for instance, can remember Marie Antoinette had no Austrian servants, lest they plotted and spoke in their native languages. After this dud of a first meeting, Henry tried to get Cromwell to get him out of it. That's not possible. Um, A few days later, they do get married. And of course, the ceremony's amazing. Everyone's wearing cloth of gold. Huge supper. They take a barge through the Thames so that everyone can see them dressed in their finery. But it is swiftly going bad. And Nathan, will you tell us why this marriage is swiftly going bad? This marriage isn't consummated. And everyone's like, you're here to fuck, dude. Produce an heir. What is happening in there? Okay? We don't know. And Anna says that every night Henry comes and kisses her goodnight. And then in the morning kisses her goodbye. All the ladies are like, no, that is not how it works. By this time, Henry had given wife number five her own land grant. She was an orphan and the niece of the Duke of Norfolk. So this might not have been too out of the ordinary. But then in June, Henry arrests Cromwell with the intention of executing him once he gets an annulment for the marriage. Maybe this was a payback for the plotting he did against and Berlin, but this is weird because Cromwell had just been made Earl of Essex two months before. Maybe Henry did this false sense of security on purpose. One of his crimes was also plotting to marry Lady Mary, maybe, but he was beheaded in July of 1540 and his head displayed on a pike at London Bridge. So now war is brewing over in Europe, and two factions have emerged. It's the pro-Catholic and the pro-Empire side versus the pro-Lutheran and anti-Imperial side. Perhaps some of the reason Henry didn't consummate the marriage with Anna was to attempt neutrality for his own benefit with the upcoming conflict. The month after the wedding, her siblings teamed up against the Holy Roman Empire, so it was getting much bigger than these two. Once the annulment is secured and right before Thomas Cromwell is executed, Henry asks Anna to write a letter to her brother and let him know that everything is fine. And she basically wrote this to him with an axe at her neck, uh, like the rest, or at least like Anne Boleyn. And finally, she did so on the 21st of July, 1540, under the watchful eye of Henry's representatives. She basically knew what she wanted to say to her brothers and they were like, no, 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 no. The former queen, or the short-lived queen, whatever you would like to call her, received a huge estate, including Richmond Palace and Hever Castle, home of Henry's former in-laws, the Boleyns. I think it's... 
I'd find it really foreboding to live in the executed one's house. <laughs> I would like that. What's going to happen to me if I live here? <laughs> Henry and Anne actually became really good friends, and she was an honorary member of the king's family and was referred to as the king's beloved sister. So basically, she ranked higher than any woman in England except for Henry's daughters and Henry's wife. Part of why they became really good friends is, of course, that huge rumor that Anne of Cleves was the ugly wife, and that's why Henry didn't like her, because she had more body yada yada. But if she was ugly, she would have never come back to court ever again. So, like, Henry wasn't surrounded by unpretty things. So she couldn't have been that heinous to be invited back to court. She was, like I said, she was invited to court often, and out of gratitude, probably for her not contesting the annulment, Henry decreed that she would be given precedence, like I said, over all other women in England. When she met Catherine Howard, once she was now queen, she bowed for so long out of respect that it was kind of embarrassing. Of course, it would be embarrassing for, you know, to see that when you're a 16-year-old girl. After Catherine Howard was beheaded, there was a little bit of pressure for Henry to remarry Anna, but Henry quickly said, no, I'm not doing that. Absolutely not. No, thank you. And she seems to have disliked wife number six, Catherine Parr, because... You know, she was older. I think she was, like, in her 30s already when she married Henry and had had two previous husbands. Our guest is also going to say, because uh, she wasn't cute, she reportedly reacted to the news of Henry's next marriage with Madame Parr's taking a great burden upon herself. And yeah, she is. That gout is worse than ever. Henry is sicker than ever. Grosser than ever. Meaner than ever. So now in March of 1547, Edward VI's Privy Council asks her to move out of Bletchingley Palace, her usual residence, to Penhurst Place to elevate others and cut costs. In August of 1553, Anne wrote to Mary I to congratulate her on her marriage to Philip of Spain. And then on the 28th of September, 1553, when Mary had left St. James's Palace for Whitehall, she was accompanied by her sister, Elizabeth, and Anna of Cleves. Anna was also taking part in Mary I's coronation procession. There were her last public appearances. She's in her late 30s by now. And as the new queen, she was a Catholic. Anna yet again changed religion, becoming a Roman Catholic. But she was probably always a Roman Catholic at heart. Anna died at Chelsea Old Manor on July 16th. 1557, and she was either, you know, 41 or 42, depending on which of the dates of her birth you take as true, and her most likely cause of death was cancer. In her will, she provided for almost every single one of her servants, and Mary threw her a really poppin' funeral, and, you know, despite that falling out that they had had um, during Wyatt's Rebellion. She was buried at Westminster Abbey, and she's kind of near Edward the Confessor. And as we find out, not on the tour. After her death, centuries later, years later, her legacy. Let's talk about it. She's the subject of multiple screen adaptations, including more recently being played by Joss Stone in The Tudors. Pia Gerard uh, played her in Henry VIII. Elvie Hale in the TV series The Six Wives of Henry VIII and Elsa Lanchester in The Private Life of Henry VIII. It's always about Henry. Why is it always about Henry? 
But that's the way it goes. Coincidentally, Elsa's husband in that TV series, uh, Charles Lawton, played Henry. So, so maybe that's why it was about him. She's also portrayed in a stage setting for the musical Six in 2017. And, of course, she is the subject of many biographies, including Julia Hamilton's Anna of Cleves, Elizabeth Norton's Anna of Cleves, Henry VIII's Discarded Bride, and finally, of course, we've got Heather Darcy's Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the king's beloved sister. Finally, she had an academic study written on her marriage by Retha Warnicki, titled The Marrying of Anne of Cleves, Royal Protocol in Early Modern England. And now that we have run through Anne of Cleves' life, we are going to chat with Heather R. Darcy, like I mentioned at the beginning, one of my favorite historians out there. She has a Bachelor of Arts in German Languages and Literature and a Juris Doctoris. During her time at university, I'm reading this off of her about page, she studied abroad in Costa Rica and France and visited Germany, among other countries. She first became interested in Renaissance history when she read a biography about Elizabeth I. I've heard that story from, I feel like, so many people. So many of my favorite history writers are like, well, one time I was on vacation and I just picked up this book about Elizabeth I and it was so awesome. She says she spent the last 10 years researching history of the Holy Roman Empire and that she, I remember she said in a podcast that her law degree is really, you know, made it a lot easier for her to conduct all the research that she does. She is a multifaceted person and is definitely a hustler and someone who I love to listen to. Like we said, you can check her out at Hands on History on the Tudor's Dynasty podcast YouTube channel and her new book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is going to be released in June of 2023. So please enjoy. This is such an exciting episode for me because we get to speak with Heather R. Darcy, one of my favorite history commentators, and she is here and she can just kick off and tell um, you guys about herself. Hi, everybody. My name is Heather. You might know me as some people call me the biographer of Anna of Cleves and some people Call me an expert on Anna of Cleves, but most importantly, I wrote the book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. It is the first book researched and written from the German perspective, and it helps make her marriage, the ending of her marriage, and a few other things a lot more sensible than Henry just being fickle. I know a lot of people love to hate Henry, but sometimes he did do things logically. I was, I was finding a lot of his things just seeing being so ego, less logic and just so... He thinks that he's still that, you know, young prince, but I don't know confronted with his age. When we look at his last two marriages in the context of why he couldn't stay married to Anna of Cleves anymore, I don't I don't know that that holds up any longer. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, we have eight questions to ask you and Nathan is going to kick it off. The question we want to start with is who is your favorite ancestor of Anna and why? I don't have a favorite ancestor, but my favorite sibling of hers is her elder sister, Sibylla. So she, Sibylla was, all the, all the Cleves girls, the Fondamach, their last name was Fondamach, all of the, the daughters were very, very feisty women, but Sibylla in particular 
was very courageous. She held down a city while her husband was being attacked, and she thought that her husband had been captured and killed, and Zabilla went to go talk to the emperor to try and get back at least his body. So she was a very courageous person. And our next question is, why do you think rumors that Anna and Henry would get back together um, during and after his marriage to Catherine Howard gained so much traction? It would have been great for the United Duchies, for Jülich Kleferberg, and there were people who actually went to Germany and found more proof that the grounds for which, or one of the grounds for which he said the marriage had to be annulled was not really a reason to have it be annulled. And of course, by the time Catherine Howard's fall happened, Anna's former fiancé, the Duke of Lorraine, or he, well, he was not the Duke at the time, he was the Duke of Lorraine's son, but he did become the Duke of Lorraine, was actually married to the Holy Roman Emperor's niece. So the Holy Roman Emperor would not have wed his niece to someone who was still technically married to Anna of Cleves, especially because Anna's marriage to Henry had been annulled. So it, and it would have been very good militarily for the United Duchies because they had not fully engaged in war yet with the Holy Roman Empire. And Anna and Henry, as far as I can tell, they got along just fine. It's just Henry couldn't be married to her for political reasons. Cool. I found that really interesting because it seemed like, why would Henry do that? And it just seems like it just gained so much, so much speed. It makes more sense now, doesn't it? If you could tell us a little bit about who were King Henry's confidants in his marriage to Anna and how much of their advice did he actually heed? Well, that's the trick question, because we don't totally know what what the really real story was going on between them. We have Thomas Cromwell, who allegedly Henry's having all these conversations with, but we don't hear anything about them until Cromwell's locked up in the Tower of London and finds out he's about to be beheaded. And he's presented with this attestation, which he's basically forced to sign in the sense that the men who delivered it to him said, hey, there's been a death warrant passed against you. You're going to have your head chopped off please sign this document and write a letter that echoes it, which he does. And then he begs for mercy at the end. So who Henry's exact confidants were at this time, frankly, I just don't know. And I'm not sure with whom he would have felt comfortable enough talking about his romantic relationships, if that was even something he really did. But there's a lot of people have relied on the reports from Cromwell that were created for purposes of affecting the annulment. That makes sense. I was even thinking maybe... Who was it? Thomas Culpepper, the guy who got executed alongside Catherine Howard. Weren't they really good friends? Yes, but I don't know that Henry would have, I don't know what Henry would have talked to him about because it's just, it's one of those things where, oh, to be a fly on the wall, right? And who do you talk to when you're peerless? Yeah. There's no one that's on your, who do you even talk to? Exactly. Do we know what Anna thought of Catherine Parr and particularly of her swift remarriage after the king's death? We don't know what she thought of the swift remarriage, but we do know that she was very upset that Henry married Catherine Parr. Keep in mind that when Henry married Catherine Parr, he had Henry had entered into a secret treaty with the Holy Roman Emperor in, I think it was early 1543, right before the Cleves War broke out, which was at its height in the summer of 1543. And conveniently, Henry married Catherine Parr so that he didn't have to fully ally himself with the Holy Roman Emperor or go against um, Anna's brother with the United Duchies. But Anna did thought that Catherine was ugly <laughs> compared to her. Um, but as far as personality and things go, I don't know how much interaction they really had before the, the wedding. The next question we've got is after Henry's death, 
why didn't Anna return to Cleves, especially when Edward sought to reduce the funds for her maintenance? It still wasn't safe for her, arguably. Uh, there was the Cleves War that I keep mentioning. That happened in 1543, and that was a Holy Roman Emperor against Anna's brother. And Anna's brother was defeated and had to capitulate to the Holy Roman Emperor. But in spring of 1547 and lingering over the summer, we have the Schmalkaldic Wars. And those were between Anna's elder sister, Zabilla, and Zabilla's husband, the Elector of Saxony, and the Holy Roman Emperor. So throughout almost the entirety of the 1540s, there was this issue that if Anna tried to go home, she would become a political prisoner. And that's why she stayed in England initially anyway, was because it was already dangerous for Germans to go transporting themselves across French and imperial territory, depending on, on what was going on. I guess the French like the like the people from Cleves a little bit when Wilhelm married the French king's niece. But overall, it was just too dangerous for her to go home. Also, we don't know exactly how she felt about staying there after Henry died, but it seems to be most of that political issue. I mean, she was a denizen of England. She had her own properties there. Frankly, she probably liked her life better there because she could kind of do what she wanted. The family situation back in Cleves wasn't ideal. Her brother was married to a Catholic and Anna herself was Catholic. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the issue was her younger sister, Amalia, did not like her brother anymore because Amalia was not a Catholic. So they lived in different castles and it was just not a nice family situation to go back to. I think I was seeing in your book that they were um, discussing how they would get Anna from Cleves to England and they were considering getting her all the way up to the North Sea so that they never had to cross imperial territory at one point. Mm -hmm. So true. I'm guessing that they lost that territory that went with. Yes, exactly. Because they would have had to pass through Gelders. And that was the big dispute that led to the Cleves War, which has three different names. The Cleves War, the Ulich Feud, or Juliers, if we're going to use English feud, sorry. Mm -hmm. And the Third War of Geldarian Succession. So yes, they did lose a major territory, or at least Wilhelm didn't have as much control over it. He kind of had some permission to do stuff with it, so it wasn't totally gone, but it, it wasn't quite the same as it was before the Cleves War. How and why did Anna fall out of favor with Mary I? So there will be a lot more about this in my second book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings. I find today, the day that we're recording is what, April 24th? I'm supposed to find out on April 26th when the release date is. Thinking Ooh. it might be around Christmas time. I don't know, but the publishing industry is a little, still a little uh, delayed by the results of the pandemic. But Anna was implicated in Wyatt's rebellion. It was found out to be bunk, but still Mary had to send Anna away from the English court because part of what Mary had to do in order to have her husband Philip come to England, her husband-to-be, was he, she had to secure the throne and make sure there weren't any threats. But Anna was implicated in Wyatt's rebellion, and that is why Mary had to send her away. We do see towards the end of both Mary and Anna's lives, they seem to be getting along well. There's records of Christmas presents, and or excuse me, not Christmas, New Year's presents, because of course they didn't exchange presents back then for Christmas, they exchanged them for New Year's Day. So they were getting along. It's just that for political reasons, Mary couldn't really have Anna at court anymore. And that must have been disappointing for her. They were the same age. And I feel like Henry went through so many wives of varying ages that that might have almost been nice to see someone your own age at court finally. 
I think so. And also, if we look at all the trouble that Mary went to to give Anna such a grand funeral, she didn't have to do that. That was very kind of her to do that. And I've not found a resource that says this. So what I'm about to say, I don't know if it's true. I'm kind of inclined to think it's not. But I'd heard somewhere that Mary had intended to build a grander tomb for Anna than what we can see now in Westminster Abbey. I don't know that that's true. But Mary did take great care in making sure that Anna had a funeral that respected her station. And I don't know that she had to do that. Anna's brother and younger sister were still alive when Anna died. So she could have just as easily made it their problem. Have you been to Westminster Abbey and seen her tomb or yes. her little spot? Yes, a couple of times. So when you go there, it's kind of difficult to find her tomb. So if you're standing at the altar, it's on the south side, which is the right-hand side of the altar. And it's just a low stone tomb and there's things built up and around it. And then if you go around to the other side, there's a little plaque that says Anne of Cleves, 1515 to 1557. But it's not on the tour. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went in 2016 and saw it. And then I just went in January of this year, 2022. I went, I think the day after I turned in my book, actually, I happened to be in England visiting some friends and uh, turned in book two. And then I went to Westminster to say hi to my girl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, she's not on the tour that I recall. That would be in my comments and suggestions. (laughs) Well, she wasn't, um, she just didn't really do anything in English history. I mean, the poor woman, she wasn't relevant to German history because she was shipped off to England. I mean, the, the only relevancy she really had was being the first German queen of England. And other, aside from the salacious story of being the ugly one that Henry dumped, which she wasn't ugly, it was... Again, the politics. Um, there, she didn't really do anything in England. I'm going to talk about Henry for a second. So I know everyone hates him and loves to hate Henry and thinks he's a super evil dude. I don't think he ever meant to get married six times. I think the last... No. I mean, and I don't, I don't think he wanted Anne Boleyn to get dead, but he did some uh. things. <laughs> yeah. And then Jane Seymour, poor woman, died. Anna, he marries her, and she's tall and robust, and her sister already had four sons, three of whom survived infancy. So that's that's a great fertility record for a family back then, right? Because they assumed that it was a woman, and so if a woman had sisters that had a bunch of sons, then clearly the woman's going to have a bunch of sons. But darn those pesky politics and trying to keep England out of continental wars, can't stay married to Anna. Then he marries little Catherine Howard, who lied about her history, which is really serious if you're the king. And you need your no questions about whether or not the children are from that woman are yours. And then he has to marry Catherine Parr because of the Cleves War. I kind of feel bad for him. I'm not saying he's a great guy, but, eh, you know, I don't really think he planned on marriages four or five and six. I don't think so either. No. And I definitely think he planned on, you know, babies four, five and six, too. Yeah. But that, of course, didn't come to pass. No. I also think it would have been so weird if he had actually married... Uh, Henry Fitzroy to marry the two half siblings. That yes. would have been wild. Yes, that would have. I, yeah, that would have been wild. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I mean, that would have been possible too after he broke with Rome. That would have kind of been on some Egyptian level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he was that twisted. I hope not. Yeah, I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. We want to know more about you right now instead of Anna Anna of Cleves. Um, Like what advice would you have to the next generation 
of history writers out there? Don't be afraid to go do it. <laughs> I'm serious. Sit down and do some writing. I The way I got started was writing little 750-word blog posts, and I do have a website that I maintain called maidensandmanuscripts.com. Right now I'm trying to do one post a month. I think there's 200 articles up there, but just sit down and do it. No one will ever teach you how to write a book. You do not learn how to write a book. I guess maybe some fine, like fine arts English majors might learn how to do it. I'm not sure. But just don't be afraid. Sit down and write. The only thing that creates writer's block is yourself. So if you can kind of make it a habit to write a little bit every day or every week or whatever you need to do, that'll help a lot. Also, if you're writing history, go find those primary sources. Go write to the archives. I wrote a letter to the mayor of Cleves because I had no idea where to start years ago. And they forwarded my letter places. So just take advantage of that. Also, if you speak a foreign language, try and politely write a letter in a foreign language to the place from which you need information and just try, try, try. The history world is pretty, I've had some good fortune making some pretty good friends in the history world. And also I think likely in the writing world too, because those things kind of go hand in hand, but yeah, just don't be afraid. Keep trying, start small. When you write a book, absolutely. You don't have to start on page one. I know when I write, I tend to break my book down into I make a big a big folder on my computer and then I break each chapter down into another subfolder and then I have a word document for each chapter because I first of all I do not write from front to back on a book I can't do that and secondly it makes it seem a lot less intimidating so if you're writing 5 to 7000 words per chapter and you have 10 chapters to write so 50000 words let's say it's scary to start on page one of a 50,000 word document, not as scary to start on page one of a 5,000 word document and then put it together later. I've never heard that before. Don't, don't, you don't have to start on page one. No. I feel like that was just like poof, light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. So fun fact with um, my first book, I, I completely rewrote that chapter and that was the last chapter that I finished was the first one. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, yeah. How do you know how you're going to start if you don't know the journey that you went on? And I think, too, when writing history, have your general outline with your main points that you want to hit and just trust yourself and trust the book to get you there. Because this is going to sound strange, but I always say this. I very much think that books are kind of li living, breathing things. And if you let them write themselves to an extent, you'll get to where you're going much more easily rather than trying to control every aspect of it. Because especially if you're looking at history, you have to let the history actually shine through. So if you follow the trail that you've set before you, you know, look for the, the evidence to make your arguments. If you're doing an argument-based book like this first one, Anna Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister was for me, or with the second book that wasn't uh, Children of the House of Cleves, that's not really an argument-based book. It's more a, hey, here's stuff that happened. But you have to let the sources tell you what happened rather than trying to force them a certain way and the book will come out and all your main points will be in it. I think that's a perfect segue into, you know, you telling us what you've got going on in your life. I know you were saying that you might have a date soon for your book. And um, I just noticed uh, you are the latest episode of Tudor's Dynasties podcast. Yeah. So I do do the hands on history over on the YouTube channel for the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm trying to do an, I, I'm a little bit behind on my episodes, guys. I'm sorry. I was trying to do one a month, but I just moved. Didn't have internet for a while. Um, but yeah, so that's up now. And hands on history 
is looking at history from a practical perspective. So it's not just talking about, oh, hey, here's this person or this event that happened. It's, well, how do people interact with history? So the most recent person I have is an art historian who tells you how a little bit how you become an art historian and kind of what an art historian does rather than a specific portrait, if that makes sense. And then also I mentioned my website, maidensandmanuscripts.com. And that has a lot of women's history, but kind of a little bit from all over. I've gotten myself down the rabbit hole of Polish history. So you'll see a lot more of that soon. And there's the two books, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, and then Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, like I said, comes out later this year. Next year, Stuart Spouses, a compendium of consorts from James I of Scotland to Queen Anne. That should be out. And then there's a book about Catherine of Aragon that'll be out, I think, the year after that. And there may or may not be one about Anne Boleyn. You are hustling. Wow. Yeah. Al, didn't we just talk about James I of Scotland? Yes, we did. Yeah. And how he was murdered by possibly one of my ancestors. So... Oh, good. There's a little plug for that episode right there. Well, I'm allegedly descended from (laughs) James I, which I don't think is true. But maybe you and I need to go meet out back and engage in some fisticuffs. Yes. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Oh, that'd be hilarious. I I really like James I's wife, Joan Beaufort, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. She was a a bold lady. Yeah. Poor James. Well, yeah, this has been like the most exciting moment of my life. I hear your parrots in the back of some of the podcast episodes here. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm getting pulled over. I haven't been paying attention to the road. Oh, my God. I'll like go back and rewind it to make sure it was them. Yes. Well, (laughs) I I have to tell you with the move, I'm not sure that we're going to hear the parrots anymore unless that's what the public wants. So I'd love to get some feedback on that because they are they are not in the room in which I am right now. I was kind of hoping one would be on your shoulder. I, I was just a little bit. And how long have you been into having birds? I feel like I don't meet people that have like birds at home. Oh, pretty much my whole life. I'm allergic to cats and dogs. So my parents got me, I think they're commonly called parakeets, but they're budgergars or budgies. I had those. And then I got my first parrot when I was 11, I think. And then out of the three I have now, I got two as babies, one right before law school. And then this other one, I got her a couple years after I graduated and then I rescued a third one. And I've had... My flock, my pandemonium of parrots, that's a collective noun, has been in its current state for about eight years now. Oh, wow. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. But yeah, I like them because I I watch my friends pet, you know, pet dogs and cats and like stick their faces in the dog or the cat's fur. And I can't do that because I'll get hives. But like I can huff a parrot, no problem. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been so awesome. I don't want to take more of your Sunday night. And I guess I'm going to go get to my needle point. Um, Okay, do it. But thank you so much. And when there's a link for your book, please send it along so I can pre-order it. Take care. It was nice to meet you too. And best wishes for what you're up to. And uh, I'll be in touch, okay? Thank you so much for being with us for another season of Fatal Fortunes. Nathan and I are going to go on our summer break as per usual. And we'll maybe be back in July-August. My favorite time of year, that hot, sticky time of July-August. And, you know, as always, let us know if there are people that you would like us to profile. And we're definitely going to, you know, try and get more obscure next time. Try and mix in. You know, we said some Ottomans, some not white folks in Africa. I will capitulate on that one. It's been another great season. I'm happy to be here for another one. And 
like Al said in the beginning, if you want more content, go subscribe to either the Spotify or on our Patreon to get those extra episodes to fill in the gaps, maybe of some things we uh, think you missed in this episode. Again, thank you so much for all of your support. We will see you later on in 2022. Remember, on Tuesdays and sometimes Wednesdays, Thursdays or Fridays or any other day of the week, we talk ghosts. Today is a Tuesday, though. Today. Today is a Tuesday. We're recording on a Tuesday and maybe you're not listening on a Tuesday, but we're really talking ghosts this Tuesday. Hell yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>